This is Steve Kim. Andy Steiger. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you speak the language of our culture and address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. Hey, everybody. As we get started, just a couple of announcements. Andy, what is happening with Apologetics Canada since Terry has moved on? Uh, what else is going on? Yeah, there's been definitely a period of changes going on, lots of change happening here at Apologetics Canada. These are things that have been in the works for almost a year now, where I made it uh, clear to Northview that Apologetics Canada was going to be making a transition. For those of you who are unaware, I uh, lead a ministry at Northview called Northview Young Adults, and I've, I've been helping them with that ministry for around seven years now. So, I was working Apologetics Canada full-time when I founded the organization for three years, and then it's a long story, but I started working with Northview in a conference, and it led to me becoming their young adults pastor, as I did both simultaneously, as I worked as the young adults pastor and as I ran Apologetics Canada. And then, uh, over the years, that ministry, the young adults ministry, grew a lot, and so did Apologetics Canada. Uh, in fact, when I first started at Northview, their young adults ministry had 30 young adults, and we had about three leaders. And as I leave, it has three to 400 young adults and has around 80 leaders. And in fact, we have, uh, this last year, it's 17 community groups. We've had as many as 19 community groups. That's pretty incredible. Yeah, with an attendance this last year, uh, a registration of 317. Just to put it into perspective, like that's a big ministry to oversee. Mm-hmm. And things things clearly were, were just blessed by the Lord. And I had an incredible time, loved that ministry. But God just really put it on my heart that it has grown to the place that it now needs full-time attention. And yet, at the same time, Apologetics Canada has grown equally. And so, I've also felt strongly that Apologetics Canada needs full-time attention as well. And so, now, uh, over this last number of months, since really since September, we have been slowly putting things into place to make this transition with me going back to full-time Apologetics Canada. So, as you can imagine, lots of things going on. For people who are wondering, that's been following us through all this transition, I am still working at Northview. My goal is to finish well and to help make the transition as clean as possible. We have a new young adults pastor coming that I participated in, in interviewing and getting to know. Uh, his name's Vin. Great, wonderful dude. Love him and his family. Looking forward to him taking on this ministry. So, over the summer, I'm helping again in this transition period so that we could make as smooth a transfer of leadership as possible. And honestly, I think you would agree, Steve. So, so often we see leadership done poorly mm-hmm. and yeah. transitioned poorly. Yeah. And my goal has been to see it done well. Obviously, COVID has created a bit of a, a hiccup in all of this smooth transitioning in, into a new leader, but things are moving along. And so, just to clarify then, if people are wondering, uh, my last day at Northview will be the end of August, in which time, come September 1st, I will be full-time Apologetics Canada again. Uh, on that note, 
You know, if you are one of those people that are looking to a organization that you could support prayerfully and financially, I would just encourage you to consider Apologetics Canada. As I move back there, uh, there are uh, more expenses that we're going to need to, in, uh, you know, take on. Over these last seven years, uh, Northeast paid my salary and allowed me to work both at the church and Apologetics Canada. And so, these are some of these added expenses that we're taking on, and God is definitely providing, but we will always need more people that are willing to come on with us and to help us in this ministry. So, if you enjoy this ministry, we'd encourage you to unite with us in it. Just to clarify too, it's not just that our expenses are going up. It's more so that there are opportunities that are opening up for Apologetics Canada, which I'm sure you will get to hear all about as things develop. But Andy has been telling me some connections that he's been making that are just incredible and people are on board with what we're doing. Just keep your ears open in the days to come, in the weeks and months to come. As Again, as things develop, you'll hear more about it. There are some really exciting opportunities that are coming our way. Yeah, again, prayerfully consider supporting us financially. Yeah, we will really appreciate that. This is a good uh, transition point here, Steve. We do have lots of great stuff that's coming, and we're going to be sharing more about that. And I can't help but think that one of the reasons why we're getting a lot of incredible partnerships and opportunities to do ministry is just the area of research that we've been in over the last number of years. As many as many people that have followed us know, we've talked a lot about the subject of artificial intelligence. Uh, a good portion of my PhD work is on this subject. And so, that's creating a lot of opportunities for us to be able to speak into culture. And also, more and more people are recognizing that aspect of our ministry. And so, recently, one of our listeners reached out to me about a new TV show that came out on Disney Plus through National Geographic and asked, hey, uh, you know, have you seen this show? Which, interestingly enough, I had perused past it, but I, I hadn't uh, taken the time to watch it. But after, uh, you know, we get these different inquiries from people that listen to the show, that encourages us to go check it out. So, if there's ever something you want us to talk on, you know, shoot us an email. But at any rate, this listener uh, asked us if we'd talk about it. And this is an interesting show that we're going to get into today. As we talk about this show, there's just so much ground that we want to cover. This is the kind of stuff that... Uh, Apologetics Canada recently has been dealing a lot with. And so this episode is actually going to be a two-parter. So let's get started. It's on Disney Plus, and I've never had Disney Plus, by the way. And I just signed up for this trial thing. And my goodness, um, all the shows that are on there, I've got the whole next week covered. I, I'll be able to entertain my kids, no problem. Um, but one of the, uh, what you see on Disney Plus is it's not just Walt Disney stuff, right? There's, you know, Marvel, Pixar, and all that kind of affiliates. And National Geographic is actually one of them. This show was produced by National Geographic, and the show is called Year Million. Now, that's interesting, by the way, Steve, that it's called Year Million, because that was one of the reasons why I didn't watch it. When I saw it on Disney+, Plus, I just went right on past it, because I, I don't know what you thought, but when I saw Year Million, the first thing that went through my mind is, that is so far into the future. That is so beyond our capacity to be able to even consider. I mean, will things regress if you go that far into the future? I mean, for me, I just felt like that just became such fantasy. I didn't even have any interest in it, but that's actually not what year million means. Yeah. As the show starts, they even clarify what that means, right? So, 
year million is really a metaphorical way of referring to the period in time in the future when technology will have developed so much that we will have reached a point of no return where there is this radical fundamental shift that happens in human society. And so this show is all about the modern technologies that we have and how this is going to impact our understanding of who we are as human beings and how it's going to transform our society. So the show goes through things like artificial intelligence, talks about genetic engineering, talks about how we will someday be able to upload our minds to the cloud and live, achieve immortality that way and live forever. You know, Steve, from the readings that we've done and the books that we've read, such as Ray Kurzweil's book, particularly The Singularity is Near, that's really what they're getting after. And as the show goes on, as you know, they begin to unpack this. But for those of you who have followed us, when they reference this idea of year million, that's really what they're getting after is Mm -hmm. this concept in which technology has so drastically changed the fabric of our human experience that there's something new that's emerging. This is really the idea. So one thing that I thought this show did really well was all the technologies that they're talking about You know, it can be pretty abstract. And because we're so immersed in this technology already, if we don't slow down, we don't realize just how immersed we are. But what they do is they slow it down and they also tell a story of this family that has to wrestle through the implications of these different technologies that are coming out and that are impacting their lives. So at the very beginning, you see the story of this couple who have a teenage daughter who gets into some kind of an accident, looks like a car accident, and she's medically dead. But now there is this robot, basically, this artificial intelligence that's scanning her that says, there's this five-minute window where we can basically download everything from her brain because her brain is not injured. And then soon after, what you see is this android that steps into this couple's lives that look exactly like the daughter, right? Um, The eyes look a little bit different, but her personality, her memories have been kept together, right? And so it uses the medium of storytelling to boil down these really abstract concepts into something that you can grasp onto a little bit more. It it hits emotionally uh, more for sure. And one thing that, you know, really hit me, I'm wondering if this hit you, Steve, is when you and I first started reading about the concepts of transhumanism, singularity, that sort of thing, you know, even artificial intelligence, it very much was seen as sci-fi and didn't have a lot of traction culturally at first when we began to address these issues. But boy, has that changed. And as I'm watching mm. this, I'm thinking, thinking, wow, these are all the stuff, this is all the stuff that we've been talking about for years now. And it's on Disney Plus. Mm-hmm. And and as well, uh, my son is reading a book right now and you know he's 12 and the, this book, which is for young adults, that's the whole point of the, the series. I think the one he's on right now is called Scythe, but it's about transhumanism. And what you're beginning to see is this is more than just a TV show. This is culture 
wrestling with the future, and that comes across very clearly in the in the, the series. Yeah, and so it talks about artificial intelligence, and of course, when we talk about artificial intelligence, it raises the question of what it means to be human. Right. And as we talk about genetic engineering, again, we ask, you know, what does it mean to be human? Are we just our bodies or something more? And then we talk about uploading our consciousness, our mind to the cloud. Again, we're asking. So what I'm noticing is throughout all of this, this question of what is human is really seated at the center of it all. As I was watching it, one of the things that really frustrated me was that because we've been talking about this, right, you and me for the last, I don't know how long, a couple of years now, especially with you doing the human project and then you getting into your PhD stuff. I am aware of some of the dialogue, certainly not to the extent that you're kind of immersed in it, but I know some bits and pieces, right? And so as I was watching it, some of the statements that they were making, it just, I'm like, okay, you're making an assumption here that that's going unchallenged. So for example, they talk about how you can download yourself or you can upload yourself, rather, to the cloud. And I'm thinking to myself, but is that really you? Or is this just a copy of the functions of your brain that's basically organized digitally and then it's uploaded, right? So that kind of ontological difference, that is to say the difference in what it is at its bottom, right? Those kinds of things kind of frustrated me a little bit because I would have loved to be able to slow down. By the way, in the show, you see guys like Ray Kurzweil, Michio Kaku, and some transhumanists as well, and journalists and so forth. And I would have loved to be able to just sit down with them and stop them at that point and say, hang on a second, let's talk about that one statement that you made because everything else you say hinges on that. Well, it was interesting. They definitely hit a few of the key players in different aspects of artificial intelligence, which we'll get into. But one of the things that I noticed right away is most of the main people that are being interviewed are A, comedians, which I thought was odd. Yeah. I guess there's such a thing as technological comedians. I didn't even know that was a category. But apparently it is. And I kept thinking to myself, I wonder if they're funny because they're sure not funny on the show. And then, <laughs> and then the other thing that I noticed is that I would say 90% of the that I saw, maybe 80%, were futurists and weren't necessarily people, you know, that had skin in the game. What I find, and I find this has always been the case as I read this literature, is that when you read a futurist, what I find is they tend to be kind of technological evangelists. They're heavy into sci-fi. They, they see where technology could go and they, and they really like to talk up technology more than it is. And I tell you right now, it's a very different conversation when you talk with somebody like that than when you talk with a computer coder. When I talk with people who know computer code, and when we discuss neural networks and artificial intelligence, I'm telling you right now that that is a very different conversation. And so, that really colors this TV show from what I've seen so far, because that's the predominant voice is the futurist. It's the technological evangelist that's really spinning technology in a specific way. And I don't think it needs to be spun that way. 
And it is kind of fascinating, isn't it, Steve, that the show begins by really setting in some fearful tones. They pull back on it later, but one of the things that they said right off the get-go, and I'm wondering, what, are you, what were your thoughts to this when they said that you should be frightened? And then they specifically talk about your phone and talk about how you know your phone is already replacing you. So, Steve, do you think we should be afraid of technology, and do you think the phone is replacing us? I think one of the reasons why we keep thinking in terms of, oh, this this technology might replace us or that sort of a thing, is that when we think of the term technology, I find that people inevitably start thinking of things like electronics or AI or GPS, those kinds of things, and we rarely think to ourselves, our clothes are actually an instance of technology. And so I remember very clearly uh, when I was studying at Columbia Bible College, during lunchtime, we, we were talking in the commuter lounge and one guy was talking on and on about how cell phones, right? We're so addicted to our cell phones. And see, this is why technology is so dangerous so on and so forth, you know, uh, Jesus wouldn't approve of this kind of technology. I'm just like, well, but Jesus himself used technology. I don't think Jesus is against technology per se. I mean, he wore clothes. He wore sandals. They had farming technology back in the day, you know, you where you have, you yoke two oxen together and, you know, those kinds of things, right? So tools that we have, they, these are all instances of technology. And so I think when we th think of the word technology, we need to start thinking a little bit more broadly and that gives us a more... I think, accurate picture of what's going on. That's basically what I'm getting at is that when we have these discussions, I think it's important, particularly when you're watching a TV show, you know, that you don't get sucked into the tele-evangelist. In this case, it's a technological evangelist, right? That That's going to sell you on how great technology is or how scary technology is. There is this balance that needs to be struck. Before we continue... A message from Andy. Hi, listeners. This is Andy Steiger. If you've been enjoying the topic of our conversation today, I go into a lot more detail on these sorts of things from a Christian perspective in my new book, Reclaimed, How Jesus Restores Our Humanity in a Dehumanized World. It's coming out September 1st. I'd encourage you to pre-order it today on amazon.com or .ca. And now, back to the podcast. So at any rate, one of the things that the video you know highlighted, which I thought was actually quite thought provoking, is they talked about the Wright brothers and about when humans first started using technology to fly, and that it was only fifty—I think they said fifty summers. You know, from one summer to fifty years later, that summer we had jumbo jets. Yeah, Boeing jets. Yeah, yeah, that's mind blowing because the older you get, you're like fifty years. That's not a lot of time. And it's amazing to see just how far technology was able to leap, you know, within just 50 years. And, and what they're getting at, though, is this idea, what is in store? Because we, this is their argument, and this is an interesting one to think about, that we are on the precipice of another leap that we're in the Wright Brothers, you know, stage of artificial intelligence. And over these next years, you know, decades to come, we're going to be making a pretty major leap. On a slightly lighter note, I saw this picture just the other day on Facebook 
of this young woman with her mask on. And she's got an ice cream in one hand and she's got her cell phone in the other and she's taking a picture of it, right? And the caption read something along the lines of, okay, what would a person from the 1990s think this person is doing? Let's just imagine that for a minute. Uh, my kids, they don't know a world without cell phones and tablets. They, they don't understand that there was a time when if you wanted to make a phone call, you always had to check with other family members to make sure they weren't using the internet. You know, th those kinds of things. Already we've made this huge progress where this phone that we're holding in our hand is way more powerful than what NASA used to put a man on the moon. You know, it's funny you bring that up, Steve, because I was just cleaning out a box in my house and I had an old telephone sitting on the ground and my son picked it up and he's like, what is this thing? You know, and it had this cord dangling off of it. Right. And he's like, and I was like, oh, a, and he's like, is this a phone? You know, he could figure that much out, but he couldn't understand. I mean, this is a 10 year old, right? He's just like, you know, does it work? Not work. There seems to be this thing protruding from it, this cord. What does that do? Is that it to power it? You know, is hilarious. You're absolutely right. I mean, in some areas, particularly in communications, we've made some significant jumps in the last couple decades for sure. So, you can, on the one hand, I think we need to balance the fact that technology is definitely moving and that we're going to continue to see technological leaps in the future, that we're not done uh, doing that. And then on the other hand, though, I think that we always have to balance that with what is technology actually capable of? What's actually taking place? Do I need to be afraid of this? You know, that sort of thing, because I do see a lot of miscommunication in that area. You know, what the technology is actually doing and what we should and and should not be concerned about and i and i find that people tend not to be concerned about the right sorts of things that's why i always you know like to take a moment on the podcast to talk about this issue cuz i i really want to help people to think through when i'm thinking about ai what sorts of things should we be thinking about? How what what's a healthy you know way to view this sort of technology? And I did just want to say something. By the way, there's a there's a conversation, there's a technological conversation that has been taking place right now in the midst of this COVID nineteen pandemic, and the conversation that's been taking place as a lot of these futurists have looked like morons lately. It has really reflected bad on them, and the reason is. Because everybody has been talking up AI for these last couple of years, and people have been investing into it heavily, and it's really had this kind of messiah complex that it could fix any scenario, right? That it's going to be our savior for future challenges, and yet has absolutely failed. Feel free to Google it, you know, listeners, and, and you'll see all the articles that have been written on this topic. AI has absolutely failed in helping with this pandemic in almost every way. And that, that has really been an eye-opener for the technology community. You know, again, what's AI actually able to do? It's one thing to talk up technology and to watch a show like this, you know, year million where we talk up, you know, what could be. But reality is something different. And this was one of those moments where reality caught up with technology and, in it, you know, it was the, the emperor has no clothes moment. 
And it'll be interesting to see, you know, how this kind of picks up from here. And as people are even just processing this, you know, why is AI not able to help in this situation? What What is lacking? And one of the things that, that I think is absolutely crucial to appreciate about the way that neural networks operate a lot of people just want to make this anthropomorphic jump when they think about technology or artificial intelligence in particular and give it these human characteristics. But you need to be careful not to do that because when we're talking about things like neural networks, we're basically talking about computation. We're talking about sophisticated and unique and creative ways of making and doing statistical analysis. It's input-output, really, essentially. Absolutely, it's input-output. And that's one of the reasons why the internet and technology and mass data in general, but really the internet has been absolutely influential with this, has allowed us to be able to do lots of input. That's data mining. AI requires lots of data. It requires lots of input so that you can then crunch the numbers for your statistical output. And our brains, by the way, work in a very similar fashion. That doesn't diminish my humanity to talk like that, by the way. Let me just give you a quick example for our listeners, such as riding a bike. If you want to ride a bike, it requires input, output. What's the input? The input is getting on a bicycle right? It's actually getting used to that height, sitting, holding those handlebars, you know, moving those pedals, getting the whole balancing thing, working out, and it requires action. You have to do this multiple times and you're putting input through your neural networks as they begin to calibrate. This gets into a whole nother philosophical conversation of the tacit nature of all this is taking place, but these neural networks then begin to calibrate as you learn to ride a bike. And the more you do it, the more sophisticated you are at it because the more precise you're dialed in on this particular activity. Music works exactly like that. When I first picked up my bass guitar, I mean, I had no idea how to do any of this. And so at first it's really clumsy, right? Okay, I put my you know, middle of my left finger here, and then with this hand I do this. But you do that enough times, it becomes, it's like I don't really think about every single little thing that I'm doing. And I think most tasks that we carry out every day, we don't really think about it, right? Like when I come to my door to take out my keys, put it in the hole and turn it, in my mind, it's just one action item. But if you break it down, really, it takes a lot of different kind of motor functions and all of these things. But there's something about how you now have the skill knowledge, as philosophers talk about it, right? The, the kind of tacit knowledge that you were talking about, where it's not something you think about every step of the way. Now, for any hardcore philosophers that are with us, and we won't stay too deep in this stuff, but uh, for, for those of you philosophers, I, I began to make a distinction in my academic work between talking about tacit knowledge in a weak sense and tacit knowledge in a strong sense. And it's interesting because I was inspired to do this off of artificial intelligence where we, we see a similar distinction. And interestingly enough, this show 
did not bring up this distinction at all. It only popularized strong, strong artificial, yeah. yeah, of artificial intelligence. And so, what that means is is that a weak form of artificial intelligence would be basically replicating what the brain is doing. It is the input-output, the statistical analysis idea. But this strong version of AI is more of an ontological declaration that to behave as human is to be human. So, think about it in this way. Your brain can ride a bike by crunching the numbers, right? By fine-tuning our neural network to do that task. A computer can do the same thing. And there's lots of machines that have shown the ability to ride a bicycle. And they're doing it in a very similar fashion, you know, as input, output, crunching the numbers. So then that's something that humans do. And so it raises this philosophical question. Okay, if, you know, if a machine can do what a human can do, does that now mean that the machine is a human? This becomes that distinction, right? right? Riding a bike, well, that's weak AI. But to say now that that machine is human because it can do something that humans can do, this becomes this ontological claim that becomes strong AI. And throughout the whole show, for me, because we've had these conversations before, I thought there was a very noticeable silence on this. Because remember that family that we talked about that's uh, featured in the film? Not a real family, right? Fictitious family that is navigating through all of these technologies, all these inventions in the future. But when the daughter or the android that is made to look like the daughter shows up, it doesn't take too long before the whole family is just business as usual. They just notice that she's got certain, she's able to carry out certain functions that she wasn't able to carry out before. But other than that, there is no question as to whether she is actually their daughter or not. But they do talk about very briefly in the first episode, what is this going to mean in terms of human rights? Do we give it human rights because, well, they basically are uh, self-conscious personal beings? And so there is that very short scene where this daughter fixes the, the dislocated wrist of this child and the mother of the child, when she realizes that this daughter um, is an android, she says, keep it away from my child, right? And then right after that, the next scene is now human rights are being granted to these androids, which raises a huge question, right? This is all predicated on this idea of the strong AI where these things can mimic you so well. Now, these things are personal beings. But, of course, that's what we're challenging, right? Just because you can mimic it doesn't mean it's a human being. We would say no. Yeah, and I want to get into the philosophy of that. I think we should talk about why we would argue that it is not a human. Uh, one thing, though, I want to mention before we get into that conversation, I think this is an interesting anecdotal aspect to this, but I do find it fascinating is that whenever I have these conversations, they tend to be with futurists again and not with computer coders. People who are programming the algorithms, they don't tend to write these books. They don't tend to ask these sorts of questions. And I just can't help but feel like it's like the mechanic who's being asked if they think that a car, you know, is a person or something ridiculous like that, right? Or a car is a dog or whatever. They've looked under the hood. 
they know what's going on with these algorithms. And they're not persuaded, I find, as much as people who want to put a gloss on this. That's why I think these futurists are anthropomorphizing a whole lot. Because people who actually work with the little details of how these things work, they're not as convinced. But futurists tend to work with these uh, more or less end products rather than the nitty-gritty of things. And so that's where you get these two different views, I think. I think you're absolutely right, Steve. I think that's where it becomes easy just to anthropomorphize the technology. Again, you have it pop the hood, if you will. Hey, like I said at the beginning, there's just so much to cover here. And so for now, we'll wrap up here. And next week, we'll come back and discuss more of the show. Thank you for joining us, listeners, on this another edition of the AC Podcast. AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada. And we'll come back next week with more stuff to think about. Until then, take care. <laughs>